Go ahead and grab a seat, everyone. My um, thank you, band, for that. I'm thinking about the line, let incense arise. And in the Old Testament, it was said that when, when the Israelites gave offerings to God, that they were a pleasing aroma, that the smoke would rise up. And not that God has a nose or God likes certain smells above others, but the idea was that the things we are doing are pleasing to Him. And my hope and prayer this morning is that the songs we are singing would be just that, and that our hearts would be focused on God. As Leslie just shared, my name is DJ. For those of you who don't know me, uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community Church. And we are in the middle of a very short three-week sermon series uh, looking at this, this idea of marriage. Um, and, and I've titled it this, this question, this, this I do, uh, with a question mark. Because I think we often elevate certain aspects of marriage. We often highlight certain things. And, and even, as I shared last week, we even idolize uh, certain pieces of marriage and, and put pressure on our spouse or a significant other that they were never meant to bear. And so last week, I, I talked specifically, we looked at Genesis, uh, and we talked about the, the physical aspects of marriage, how that's often elevated in culture uh, and even in our churches. We talked also about the companionship that comes along with being married and how uh, very much the, the narrative that we see out in the world is that you are incomplete until you find that other person. Uh, and what we looked at is just how the Bible does not say that. Uh, and to elevate either of these aspects of marriage is to make an idol out of these things. Uh, and when in reality, the only thing that can complete us uh, the only thing that can fill us, the only thing that can give us true satisfaction in this life is our relationship with God. And what we see is that throughout the Bible, marriage is used as, as a metaphor for God and God's people. Uh, and so we're going to continue this idea. We're going to continue on uh, this train of thought this week. Uh, and specifically, we're going to be looking at this idea of singleness in the Bible, a topic that doesn't often get preached on, uh, doesn't often get its, um, get its due, even though what we're going to see, the writers of the Bible uh, prefer it to being married. Uh, and, and if any of us are operating with the assumption that marriage in any way completes us, uh, all you got to do is look at Jesus and look at Paul uh, two people who were single and, and say that if marriage completes you, then somehow Jesus was incomplete. And I just don't think that's the case. I'm also aware, as I mentioned last week, that this is a, a sensitive topic for many, and I want to do justice to that and, and, and approach this with as much grace uh, as possible. And so with all these things in mind, before we jump into the Scripture, before we uh, get talking about this, would you all bow in a word of prayer with me? God, would you speak this morning, and would we listen? Would we hear, we would hear your words, and God, that they just wouldn't, uh, wouldn't be another voice in a sea of voices that we hear around the world, but these would be words that would transform us. God, I pray that you would become greater this morning, and that each and every one of us would be less. Amen. 
So last week, we spent some time in the Old Testament looking at Genesis and how God created us and uh, some of the, the ways in which marriage fulfills some of those things. This week, we're going to look at the New Testament. Uh, now, I, I want to say from the start, there's no possible way to cover everything said about marriage in the New Testament. I only have three weeks, uh, so I'm picking and choosing what to focus on. Uh, but what I want us to see is that what we're going to see from the words of Jesus and then the words of Paul is that they continue on in this theme that maybe, maybe the way we have looked at marriage, uh, maybe the way we have elevated marriage uh, needs some, needs some reevaluating nowadays. So if you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to be looking at, I have a, quite a few long passages for you. So get ready to flip through your Bibles or look at the screen. Uh, but Matthew 22 is where we're going to look. Matthew 22 Uh, Starting in verse 23, I'll give you a second to flip there. What is happening in this passage is that uh, some religious leaders of the day, some rulers of the day are questioning Jesus. They didn't like a lot of what he was saying, and so they're going to ask him some questions, trying to trip him up, a little Bible brain teaser for Jesus, and specifically they're going to be asking him about marriage, and I want us to see how Jesus responds. This passage uh, is also in Mark 12 and Luke 20, but we're going to look at Matthew. So starting in verse 23, it says, That same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. And now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven since all of them were married to her? Before I keep going in this passage, uh, this, this feels... Uh, like it's objectifying the wife. I, I feel that. I know this. When we read this, it feels like something's happened to his wife. But I want you to be clear. In these Old Testament laws, the question we need to be asking is, who, who was the law protecting? Who was given rights by the law that was happening in this old time? And in this time, this law actually protected the woman and gave her rights because otherwise a guy could literally, she would be left with nothing to fend for herself. And so this law was there to protect the woman different times, but I want you to see that the law was there. Back to the passage. Verse 29, Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Verse 30 again. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Often in the church, we operate like marriage is the default for everyone. We operate sometimes, and we don't always say it explicitly, but we, we, we offer this narrative that it is, it is through marriage and it is through the pieces of marriage that you will find wholeness and completeness through a spouse. And last week, I tried really hard to tell you that that is not the case, and you are only putting pressure on your spouse that you cannot, they cannot possibly live up to. 
But what we see is that when we are complete, when we are finally made whole at the resurrection, marriage is not even part of the equation. And by, by, by following the logic, marriage is not part of the equation and sex is not part of the equation. Some of you are now disappointed with what heaven's going to be like, <laughs> but it's there. Jesus not only says like wholeness doesn't come through marriage, he says it doesn't even exist in the resurrection. If you had any questions as to whether or not marriage could fulfill you, Jesus makes it clear that it cannot. So why do we still operate like it is everyone is supposed to get married? Why do we still operate like it is, it is this, this, this purpose for which everyone is created, this thing that everyone should pursue? And unfortunately, if you don't get married, you're left with the consequences of singleness. Why do we treat singleness and celibacy as lesser than when in reality, singleness and celibacy will be present in the resurrection and marriage won't. It feels like Jesus gives an edge to one of those. I want to give voice uh, to this pressure that people feel. Uh, too often in churches, I, 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 like I said, I don't think we give direct mention and say singleness and celibacy are not, not actually preferred. Uh, I don't think we would get up here and say that, but too often, it is something that is often ignored. Uh, it is something that is set off to the side, and those who are single, um, those who are celibate, those who are widowed, those who are divorced are seen as somehow missing something. So I wanted to give voice to this. This is not my story. I wanted to give voice to it from a woman named Jen, who is actually ordained in the eco denomination. She is a woman who at the time of this writing was in her late 30s, and, and I just want to tell some of her story, and this is her response uh, to some of the ideas of being single. This is a story she tells. She says, it came in the mail at my parents' house. A big fancy envelope addressed to the Graffius family, it could only be one thing, a wedding invitation. My parents had been cordially invited to my cousin's upcoming nuptials, and sure enough, I was their plus one. As I thumbed through the rest of the mail, I found a second festive invitation. It was addressed to my younger sister and her husband, two people who just so happened to be living in my parents' guest house at the time. If the first envelope was frustrating, then the second was infuriating. The message was loud and clear. I am not a real adult, and I won't be until I get married. Because, as we all know, it is not until a woman is married that she is deserving of her own invitation to a family wedding. Forget about the fact that she no longer lives with her parents and that she may very well want to invite a plus one of her own to the blessed event. It doesn't matter. When it comes to weddings, the unmarrieds can be only be put in one of two places, the kids' table or the old maid's table. I'm going to keep reading because I think it's good. Why is marriage the mark of a fully formed adult? I have been asking myself this question for a while. Is there not a better set of criteria by which we can evaluate one's maturity and success? I mean, anyone can get married, and yet somehow marriage is seen as the gateway to real adulthood. It doesn't even really matter if one's marriage is healthy or not. To be a true grown-up, all that matters is that it exists. When did marriage become the achievement of all achievements? She says, I never saw myself as the person who would be asking these questions in my 30s. 
I'm one of those overachiever types, which I think is a lot of you out here too in Silicon Valley. I was always a little mature for my age. I tried to do everything right. I worked hard in school. I got good grades. I went to church and was the Gold Star Youth Group kid. I never thought I'd be wondering if I counted as a legitimate adult. But here I am, a woman in my late 30s who holds a master's degree from a prestigious institution and is working on a doctoral degree at, another, at yet another one. I have a great job. I've been a professor for several years, and I have traveled the world. What's more, I have amazing friends and even a dating life. All of these things add up to a pretty vibrant and fulfilling life, and yet I continue to encounter a world, hear this, I continue to encounter a world both inside the walls of the church and outside them that tells me I just haven't made it yet. In my current state, I am incomplete. Maybe I will understand what I'm missing when I'm married, if I'm married. I don't think we do this explicitly. I don't think we get up here on stage and say that we are not thinking about you if you're not married. But the truth is, we don't give it a lot of voice. Uh, for those of you who maybe interacted with anybody under 30, um, how many of you have actually looked at them and instead of asking the question, when are you going to get married, ask them, do you think you are going to get married? Do you think you are called to celibate singleness? Do you believe you are called to this other option? I'm willing to bet nobody has asked a young person that question. Later in the book of Matthew, Jesus gets questioned again about marriage. This is from uh, Matthew 19, uh, and he continues this trend and doubling down on this idea that not only is singleness uh, a valid option, but he actually gives it some credibility here. Matthew 19, verse 3. Some Pharisees came to test Jesus. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will be one fat, become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. It was not the intent from the beginning. It was about our hard hearts. It was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, we could talk about divorce, but that's not this talk. But I want you to see how Jesus both elevates marriage, but also elevates the other option. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus doesn't deny this. Look at what he says. He says, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Jesus, in this phrasing, 
actually says here in the beginning, not everyone can accept this, only those to whom it has been given. He is alluding to this idea that not only is marriage a gift from God or a gift that is given from God, but actually singleness can be a gift that is given from God. And it sounds crazy for me to say that out loud because I'm saying it and I think all of you are looking at me going, yeah, 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 it's not actually a gift. Um, Nobody actually thinks like that and that just serves as proof that in the air, um, in the world that we live in, most of us would not consider singleness or celibacy, uh, one, an option, let alone a gift. The author of this book, Cutter Calloway, a Fuller professor, says this. He says, so for Jesus, those given in marriage in this age should commit their relation to their relationship in a way that reflects God's original intentions for marriage as an indissoluble covenant. But Jesus also makes clear that not everyone is called to marriage. Indeed, in an ultimate sense, no one is. For those to whom it has been given words, according to Jesus, God gives the gift of celibate singleness and to others the gift of being married. There is no sense in which one is better or worse because at their core, marriage and singleness are reflections of the myriad yet particular ways God invites each of us to be faithfully present in this world. Another way of putting this is to say that for Jesus, marriage and singleness are a matter of calling or of vocation. Again, what would it look like if instead of, of, as a church and as a community, we operated like everyone was destined to get married at some point? What would it look like if we actually had, had a very serious theology uh, and a very serious community and, and practices that looked at what the Bible actually says about marriage and singleness and actually took it very seriously before we simply asked uh, our nieces, nephews, sons, daughters, so have you found anyone yet? I think we have a long way to go in living this out in the church. Many of us operate in the church like singleness. It is an option, yes, but it's an option for someone else, not me. It's not realistic, and it definitely isn't equal to being married. Uh, And unfortunately, it's just what happens if you don't find that special someone. And as I said in the beginning, when we operate like this, we, we are denying the fact that both Jesus and Paul unashamedly pursued singleness in their life. And Paul, as we're going to read in just a second, actually says he prefers it for his people. 1 Corinthians 7. Let's take a look at what he says. Now for the matters you wrote about. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. And in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his body but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Verse 6, I say this as a concession, not as a command. 
I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. We don't talk about that verse much. And we definitely don't push it on our kids because we want grandkids someday. Paul reiterates what Jesus said about both marriage and singleness, about them being a gift from God. And and, and it is so clear as day here in Scripture uh, about what the preference is, but for some reason, we don't live this out. When we elevate marriage as the default for everyone, when we elevate it as this thing that, that will complete you, when we elevate it as this thing that is a piece of life that if you're missing out on it, you are missing out uh, on something that is good and wholesome and, and you're just not experiencing the fullness that God has designed you to. When we elevate marriage like this, what we do is, is everyone who doesn't get married, everyone who doesn't fit the traditional uh, Christian view of marriage, anyone who is over here who doesn't fall into this category, what we are saying is there is this amazing thing out there, but you can't have it. There is this beautiful thing. Everyone is destined for this, but not you. Again, we don't say it explicitly, but how much of, of, of the way we say things, the way we have structured things, the way our conversations have gone, have, have we unintentionally at times elevated marriage to this status that, that both Jesus and Paul don't give it? Yes, it is good. Yes, it was created by God. But it is not this thing that is to be held up that completes us or fulfills us or gives us anything more. And how difficult it must be for those over on this side. I want to read uh, an excerpt from a guy named Joshua Beckett, and Joshua Beckett is a Christian uh, who has chosen a life of celibacy. Uh, he has chosen because he, he, he believes that the Word of God says one thing about marriage, and he is someone who experiences same-sex attraction, and he has chosen to live a celibate life. But listen how, what he says about this. He says, among my peers, celibacy was treated like a terrible joke something simultaneously to be laughed about and cringed at. We understood that God might call someone to a life of celibacy. After all, we had after all read 1 Corinthians 7. We all just read that together. So we knew it was a fringe possibility, but it was like a call to a remote mission field, a life of hard work and isolation reserved for the spiritual elite, but most certainly not for regular Christians. Again, he's not saying that this is what the Bible says about marriage. He's saying that this is what he had heard. Celibacy wasn't actually an option. It was something reserved for people who unfortunately couldn't uh, or didn't get married. Paul goes on uh, in this passage to to give at least one reason why he prefers marriage. Uh, One reason he thinks it's better uh, to stay unmarried. In verse 32, this is still 1 Corinthians 7. He says, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. 
His interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Last week... Uh, I tried to set up by looking in Genesis that every single one of us were created to be with God, to love God and to be loved by God. This is the reason for which we were created, and there was that harmony in Eden, and someday at the resurrection there will be that harmony again, and marriage is not going to be there, is what Jesus said. But what we see also in Scripture is that whether you are married or unmarried, whether you are called to, to a life with somebody else or called to a life of celibate singleness, your purpose in life is no different. Your purpose in life is the same exact one that it was from the beginning. Your purpose in life was to glorify God. It is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It's, about, it's, it's not about looking in and finding my own personal satisfaction or fulfillment. It's not about through looking at finding my own happiness through a spouse or finding my own happiness even through serving God. What we see actually is that whether we are called to singleness or called to marriage, uh, Paul and Jesus here seem to try to refocus our attention outward. Uh, they try to focus our attention. If we are married, we saw in Ephesians, uh, not Ephesians there, we saw in 1 Corinthians there, he says, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. And in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. There's a radical turning towards the other. And what Paul also says later in 1 Corinthians is he says, I would wish that you would remain unmarried because if you're unmarried, you can stay so devoted to Jesus and so devoted to serving that purpose for which God created you. There is that famous passage, why were you created? You, were, you are God's masterpiece. You are his workmanship. Created why? To do good works. Not created to get married. Yes, marriage is a part of it, but that is not the sole purpose. You and I were created to do good works. We were created to love God and enjoy God. We were created to obey God. And whether you are married or single, that job does not change. It just looks different. So I want to give you a couple examples. I started working in a church when I was 21. Before that, I had been volunteering for a number of years, but eventually they, they paid me to, to be there all the time. I was already there all the time, and eventually someone paid me to do it. And I, I, by the time I was 25 or 26, I felt like I was getting pretty good at it, at least in my home church. I was running a junior high youth group, a high school youth group, a college youth group. I was helping on Sunday mornings, setting up chairs. It was a smaller church, so you end up doing everything. And... Here was kind of my weekly schedule. Sunday mornings, I was at church, often early to help set up and get everything ready. Sometimes I preached. I often led Sunday school. Sunday nights, we had our young adult slash college group, where we often had food, so I was setting up, getting ready for that. Monday nights, we, I had people over to my house, and we had dinner, and we often watched uh, a movie or something together. It was a time of fellowship. That's when we watched The Bachelor, which was my example from last week. There were seasons where... We partook in that particular show. Tuesday nights, we played Ultimate Frisbee uh, at a park 
We had 25 or 30 people showing up to play Ultimate Frisbee. Wednesday nights, we had our youth group, and most, a lot of the people who were there at the college and young adults group also volunteered with our youth group. I was seeing these people Sunday through Thursday, guaranteed almost every single week, uh, not to mention if we had an event on Friday or Saturday, I was there. Um, I was constantly there. Uh, I lived at the church. And then one day, I met Sam who would eventually become my future wife. And very quickly, she pointed out to me, she goes, DJ, when are we supposed to see each other? Because you are booked at least four days every week. You seem to spend all the time at the church. And if this relationship is going to flourish, then something in this relationship with the church needs to give. Uh, and it did because it would not have been possible to keep both things going, at least at the speed. And let me tell you, I have been fighting this tension uh, from that day forward of trying to figure out how do I both uh, do what I feel like I should be doing. There's so much uh, that can be done at the church. There's so many meetings and people that want to get together. There are so many ministry opportunities that are out there. And I have my wife and my son and, and our, our daughter at home right now who also need me, and they need me to be healthy, and they don't just need my leftovers at the end of the day when I'm exhausted after spending it here doing things that did or did not actually need to happen. I, I say this not to like put myself up or anything, I'm just trying to, to illustrate that at least in my life, I have seen this, this example that Paul gives. I was divided. I still am divided, and there are seasons where as Sam reminds me very quickly, where I fall into old habits and patterns again and need to be reminded, no, there is a responsibility here at home. Whether I was married or unmarried, in both situations, the focus was outward. The focus for all of us should be outward. If we are single, the focus is, is, is focused on those around us, those are neighbors, those are close friends, those within the church. If we are married, yes, our focus is also on those things, but it is also on our spouse and on our family and on our kids. In both situations, whether married or unmarried, the purpose doesn't change. We are called to glorify God in all things, and we are called to love our neighbor. I want to give you another example. I have a picture of this woman named Katie Davis, and my wife told me about her. Um, Katie Davis, when she graduated high school, uh, made the decision, much to the frustration of her father, to not go to college. She chose to spend a year in Uganda, uh, teaching preschool um, there in the middle of nowhere, basically. And while she was teaching, uh, there, was, there was a moment where she saw a little baby girl who was under some rubble, who was crying, and who needed someone to take care of her. And so Katie took her in and said, you know, I, I will take care of this baby until we can find a home. And over the course of not just the 10 months she was originally supposed to be there, but over the course of a couple years, it didn't just stay with one baby, but she ended up adopting something like 13 girls in this, this place in Uganda. And so you can show the next picture because she wrote a book on it um, called Kisses from Katie and part of her family and her journey and what made her decide to do this. Uh, and she did this in her early 20s. Now, uh, throughout this too, she, she started a ministry called Amazima. And, and through that ministry, they still feed hundreds and, and make sure that a number of them go to school. 
I am not saying that she couldn't have done this if she were married. Don't hear me say that. She is now married, and her and her husband continue this ministry. What I am saying is not a single one of us would look at her and look at what she's done, look at what she is doing, look at the calling that has been placed on her life and think, man, you know, but if only she had a husband. You know, she does all this for the poor, she's doing all this for these girls, and she has built this family, you know, but she's still not complete. It is ridiculous uh, to say that. And yet, for some reason, and, and this is my challenge to us as a church, for some reason, that narrative and, and that story and that just atmosphere continues to permeate the church. And it continues to alienate those who might not ever get married. It continues to alienate those who, who got married and, and it ended poorly. It continues to alienate those young people by actually limiting the options that we give them by saying you should be pursuing this and if you don't make it, well, you're destined to just do this. Whether you are married or unmarried, know that both of them are a calling from God. And within that calling, you are charged with radically loving the other. You are charged with radically loving those around you, whether that is a spouse, whether that is a neighbor, a friend, or 13 children in Uganda. The mission is no different. The context is, though. What would it look like for us to adjust this narrative? What would it look like for us to not marginalize those who are single, but actually see them not only as valued members of the kingdom, but as Paul said, those who can do things even greater? What would it look like uh, as we raise our kids and as we look to our young adults to not look at them and say, well, you know, everyone is supposed to get married. When are you getting married? Uh, and instead, we actually took some time to wrestle with what is God calling us to? Is God calling us to, to be with a spouse for life? Is God calling us to singleness and service in that way? I'm going to close with another quote uh, from this book from the Fuller Professor named Cutter Calloway, and in this, he's challenging a lot of these assumptions uh, we have about marriage. He's not trying to lower marriage, but just trying to say that we have elevated some aspects of it and we have alienated some people uh, by, by, by leaving them out and by them being noticeably absent in what we say and what we do. But listen to this, what he says. He says, there is yet another way a better way. It is to accept the bridegroom's invitation as a call to focus our passionate energies on the other and for the sake of the other. It is not to deify or denigrate the other, but to love them as we are loved. Indeed, as risky as this proposition might sound, Jesus himself relinquished his own passionate desires for the sake of his bride, the church. This picture of willful self-surrender is a far cry from the one that sees marriage as an opportunity for Christians to express all their pent-up sexual angst. Instead, it is an invitation to embrace ever more fully the community that is called to faithfully sustain us along the way. Let me do that last line again. 
it is an invitation to embrace ever more fully the community that is called to faithfully sustain us along the way. May we be a church and a community that is not this inward focus, that is not pushing everyone in the same exact direction, but may we be a church who takes seriously what the Bible says about marriage, takes seriously what the Bible says about singleness, and takes very, very seriously this message that it is not about me and my fulfillment, but it is about shifting that gaze outward and radically loving the other, whether we are married or single. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I ask uh, first and foremost for your forgiveness uh, for ways in which I have played into this narrative, for ways in which my words or lack of words have harmed any of those around me. God, I pray that we as a church would take seriously this call uh, of marriage. It is a call, but that we would also take very seriously the call to singleness because it is also a call and a gift from you. May we create a community that fosters this. May we create a community where people are not left in isolation and loneliness, but people are brought within the community and made full-fledged partners uh, of the gospel. And God, I pray that in all of our contexts, whether, whether single, whether, whether celebrate, whether uh, married, God, I pray that you would help us to shift our gaze towards the other, whether that is our spouse, our neighbor, our friend, or those around us, Lord. Help us to radically love those around us. We pray all these things in your holy name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for worship uh, this morning. Just a couple of things happening after the service. If you need prayer for anything, there are some, some people up here who would love to pray for you. They have a huge sign. Uh, and they love to spend some time hearing your request and spend sa- spending some time going to God with that request. Uh, for those of you who are coming to the uh, vertical marriage class that's after the service, we are moving from the chapel to the social hall because we were too full last time. So we're in a bigger room, and so that's where we are if you go to the chapel and it's empty. Um, that's happening uh, in about 20 minutes right after the service. My hope and my prayer for each and every one of us is this. Uh, as, I, as I said before, whether we, whether we are single or married, the, the mission and the charge is no different. Uh, the, the two great commandments that Jesus uh, highlights are to love God and to love our neighbor. All of the laws are summed up in those two commands. You and I are called to love God and love our neighbor. We will never be fulfilled or complete by putting those expectations on anyone else other than God. May we be people, may we be a church that radically changes our focus and loves the other. Go in peace.